0: Good afternoon, everybody. It is a beautiful day, so I want to thank you all for sacrificing today. I know it's a noble one, uh, but I want to welcome you to this Capitol Hill briefing entitled Life After Brack, Has the Time Come for Another Round? Uh, I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and again, I want to thank you all for coming. Um, before we begin, if you're watching via the live stream uh, and would like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you, so please tweet appropriate questions uh, to us at hashtag CatoEvents. Uh, Further, last week, the Cato Institute released the new Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Uh, We have some copies here, and I'm told copies will be going to every member office on the Hill starting this week and into next. Uh, Meanwhile, fully searchable PDFs are available at Cato.org. And though we don't talk about BRAC explicitly in this book, there are 16 chapters on all aspects of our views on foreign and defense policy, including chapters on budgets, how to deal with terrorism, as well as seven chapters focusing on hotspot regions around the globe. Uh, to get started, since 2005, the idea of a new base realignment and closure process has repeatedly arrived more or less dead in Congress, despite a new paper from the Pentagon last year detailing the level of overcapacity in each of the branches of the armed services. However, this year there has been detectable signs of life. At a recent hearing, Senators John McCain and Jack Reed said they want to discuss it with the new Defense Secretary, Jim Mattis. Uh, In the House, Congressman Adam Smith, the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, said the tide is changing and introduced H.R. 753, which would allow for a new BRAC process. Uh, So today, we'll aim to do two things. Uh, First, we'll assess the political environment for a new round uh, in this Congress. And two, we'll take a dive into past BRACs, see how well they have lived up to the promises of supporters or down to the fears of their detractors. So first up will be Kurt Couchman, who is the Vice President of Public Policy at Defense Priorities, whose mission is to quote, inform citizens, thought leaders, and policymakers of the importance of a strong, dynamic military, used more judiciously to protect America's narrowly defined national interest, and promote a realistic grand strategy, prioritizing restraint, diplomacy, and free trade to ensure American security. Couchman comes to defense priorities after six years as a policy expert in congressional office. Most recently, he was a well-known legislative director where he has developed initiatives and built coalitions in diverse fields such as foreign affairs, defense, trade, health care, transparency, housing finance, and much else, including two bipartisan balanced budget amendments with more than 60 co-sponsors each. That is the currency of the realm up here. Uh, He previously conducted legislative affairs for the Cato Institute, not many people know that, Uh, including expanding the influence of its foreign and defense policy scholars like Chris Preble on Capitol Hill. He has also advocated for private industry in the energy and chemical fields, and he holds a master's degree in econ from George Mason University. Uh, Then Chris Preble, who is the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, he is the author of The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. And most recently, he edited our foreign policy choices, rethinking America's global role, copies of which I have, and I believe there are some on the table outside. Uh, Preble is a widely published commentator, and his work regularly appears in the top periodicals and media outlets, and he is a frequent guest on television and radio. In addition to his work at Cato, Preble teaches the US foreign policy elective at the University of California Washington Center. He is a former commissioned officer in the US Navy, and he holds a PhD in history from Temple University. Uh, each will speak for about 20 minutes or so, and we'll try to leave time for questions at the end, and I will have a short announcement at the conclusion of the event. But for now, let's please welcome Kurt Couchman.
1: Thank you all for being here, and uh, thank you to Cato and Chris and Peter for having me today. Uh, I am at Defense Priorities, just a little bit more about that organization. It's a new conservative foreign policy and defense think tank. Uh, If you could sum up our mission in one phrase, it would be that we're trying to create a lean, mean fighting machine that uh, only goes out uh, to serve America's core national interests, primarily. Um, So life after BRAC, has the time come for another round? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, So BRAC is the base realignment and closure process. Uh, The objective is to find real property, land, and improvements, buildings that aren't needed for current and expected military activities. Uh, It only covers domestic bases. Uh, Foreign bases, uh, there's a lot more flexibility that the administration has. And in fact, they've been exercising that since the end of the Cold War, the last 25 years. To significantly consolidate um, and reform our base structure abroad. Uh, in fact, that used to be the case for domestic bases uh, during uh, after the after World War II, when we had uh, 12.2 uh, men in uniform um, by the the peak of it in 1945. Uh, we came down obviously after the war, uh, but then the Cold War you know got going, and we developed a lot of base capacity. Um, presidents uh, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford all closed a substantial amount of bases uh, around the world and here at home. Uh, and then in 1977, incidentally the same year that the Cato Institute was founded, um, Congress passed a provision that limited the president's authority to, um, to do this on his own volition. There were a series of reports, and there was an opportunity for Congress to disapprove the recommendations. So that's what we have today. It's, if you're interested, it's uh, 10 United States Code um, 2587 uh, is the, the section number. Um, and outside of the BRAC process with all the reporting and so on, DOD is fairly limited. Uh, but it's not completely limited. It does have some options um, uh, under the BRAC statute. And that's it right down in the corner, 2687. Um, uh, DOD can close installations with fewer than 300 civilians stationed at them. They can realign larger installations but by no more than the lesser of, 50% of the civilian workforce, or half of it, whichever is less. Um, and the, the other exemption is if the president certifies that it, quote, must be implemented for reasons of national security or a military emergency. I'm not aware of a time that the president has closed a base or moved a lot of troops out um, due to a declared emergency, but it is there. Uh, the reason to do BRAC instead of using those exemptions is because it's a more deliberative process. It's a more uh, public process. Communities have an opportunity to weigh in. There's transition assistance that's available uh, for the communities who are either uh, accepting or losing uh, folks. Uh, you may remember that when, um, uh, what's that base that's just down uh, uh, down the road from here There was a, a big recipient under the 2005 BRAC? Um, no of war that's the one Um, there's a huge amount of uh, discussion about how to make that work with all the additional traffic and the need for housing Uh, and so you know there was transition assistance for that as well Um, doing it through this exceptions process doesn't necessarily provide the same resources This is the history of the US total active duty forces from 1968 to to the present. Um, 1968 was the peak of Vietnam. Before Vietnam, um, the level was kind of comparable to where it was for the rest of the Cold War. Um, But we had a lot of uh, excess capacity at that time, and some of it had to do with changing technology. You know, we had these Nike missile sites that uh, were meant to uh, intercept incoming missiles. Um, Technology moved ahead, they weren't needed anymore. Uh, and it became obvious that, that there, there would be savings to be found by el- eliminating some excess sites. So in uh, uh, the, the Pentagon started a process and then Congress uh, approved them moving forward with it and that ended up being the 1988 background uh, and then in the 1990 Base Realignment and Closure Act um, the 1991, 1993, and 1995 backgrounds were all authorized and then the 2005 version was actually an amendment uh, to that, and you can find that all in the notes section of that uh, section that I referenced before. That vertical line is, uh, you know, during the Cold War and then after the Cold War, so you've got the U.S. and Soviet Union and then, yay, America. Um, So during those rounds that I just mentioned, um, 350 sites were liberated for other uses. Uh, I mean, it's not like when you have a base closed, the property just falls off the face of the earth. It's It's available for other things. Uh, the total annual savings in current dollars are about uh, 13.6 billion dollars now the the 1988 through 1995 rounds uh, cost in the aggregate about 25 billion dollars and led to about 8.5 billion in recurring savings that's every year not 8.5 billion a year like total but like every year that goes by there's another 8.5 billion dollars saved relative to the base structure at the time Now the 2005 background was a totally different animal. The 1988 one was just five bases and then they kind of got progressively bigger, Um, but as GAO described it, it was the biggest, most complex, and costliest background ever. More than 800 locations were affected and that ranges anywhere from like a major military installation of which uh, 14 were closed and another dozen were realigned all the way down to things that are essentially deeds on property that don't really have a whole lot of structure, but you know, maintaining the books on that stuff uh, can add up. Um, it shaved about 3.4 percentage points from the 24% excess that DOD calculated at the time. Um, but it was in two pieces, really. The previous rounds had been efficiency rounds, so they were focused on liquidating excess assets. This included that. That was the efficiency BRAC, which cost about $6 billion on the front end for moving stuff, for environmental remediation, for military construction, uh, to be able to facilitate all of that. Uh, but it saves about $3 billion a year, so a payoff of two years, roughly, that's pretty good. It was a transformation round um, that led to all the controversy. They, uh, DOD calculates that ended up costing about $29 billion and saves about a billion dollars a year when you account for interest costs. It probably never actually pays for itself, but that wasn't the point. The point was to restructure the basing capacity of the armed forces to meet the, the critical needs of the future. Um, and of course it cost more and saved less than projected. So it's been very controversial, and that's uh, been a cloud hanging over the head of folks talking about doing BRAC again. Uh, this is the map of the entire United States. Um, the red uh, are uh, bases that were closed outright. Uh, the, uh, the blue are bases that lost capabilities and personnel through realignments, and the green are the winners. Uh, to zoom in to uh, my home state of Pennsylvania and Chris's home state of Maine, um, you can get a better sense of what happened. It was a major, major round, um, and there are still lingering feelings about that. Um, my wife's aunt uh, I was talking to her about um, the local congressman is a guy named Tim Murphy and he really went to bat for the uh, uh, the it was some uh, airport uh, in Allegheny County it's now the Allegheny County Community uh, Airport but people still remember that a decade later um, so uh, let's talk about the process so first of all Congress calls for the brac uh, it's not strictly required by the underlying statute but um, DoD is not going to put the investment into doing all of that, it actually does cost some money to set up a commission and go around the country and so on, uh, determining uh, what should happen. So they want to get buy-in from Congress before starting the process. Um, And then once Congress has asked for one, uh, the President nominates an independent commission uh, composed of people that are recommended or or at least um, recommended in consultation with uh, the House uh, Speaker, the House Minority Leader, the Senate Majority Leader, and the Senate Minority Leader. Uh, and then this, uh, this Commission receives uh, a report uh, or, or proposal from the Secretary of Defense, uh, who at this time has done a pretty broad survey of what's needed for the Armed Forces. Uh, he submits the proposal to the Commission. They then review it. Uh, they will submit an amended recommendation to the President. They can add facilities that they think should be um, closed or realigned. They can remove facilities or decrease the scope and scale of them. Uh, when it comes to the president, however, uh, the president has really three choices. He can approve the, reports, uh, the, the the commission's report, he can disapprove it in whole, or he can disapprove it in part. The president cannot add sites. Um, he can only remove from the recommendations. Uh, if it is disapproved by the president, it goes back to the commission, they take another look at it, and they uh, can send an amended version back to the president. If he then disapproves it again, then it's done. There is no BRAC. If he approves it, uh, it goes to Congress. Congress has 45 days to disapprove. It's in the form of a disapproval resolution. Uh, the last one was in 2005. The disapproval resolution failed uh, 85 to 324, and then one member voted present. Um, so you know, once Congress has said, let's do this, once um, in the modern context, Sec- Secretary Mattis gets his people together and then some independent commission comes together and President Trump sends it to uh, Congress. Uh, presumably uh, that will have been well vetted and well thought out and uh, and Congress would accept it. Um, if there's no disapproval resolution then the, uh, the closures and the realignments can proceed. Um, the 2005 commission said that we should be doing this regularly um, that our strategy has changed roughly every 15 years over the last hundred years and you can see how we've Somewhat transitioned from an era of counterinsurgency to advise and uh, advise and and train and ISR and that kind of thing. Um, they say that the process has repeatedly proven its worth. It has. It's a very professional process. There's robust checks and balances between all the different players. Um, it's proven practical and effective, uh, and it is politically difficult. I've worked for two members of Congress, and um, nobody wants a facility in their district to go away. There are a lot of folks uh, in the communities that are very well organized, very committed uh, to keeping it there. It's uh, partly for economic reasons, it's partly for prestige. There's a lot of reasons that people uh, like having these facilities uh, in their regions. But the 2005 Commission recommended future BRAC's every eight to 12 years to keep up with those changes in our military strategy. And immediately following a quadrennial defense review. The last one was in 2014. The next one is next year. So it would probably make sense to do another round of BRAC in 2019 to incorporate those recommendations. DOD wants BRAC. They started asking for it again in 2012, seven years after the last round. Uh, Secretary Panetta uh, talked about how he understands the political difficulties, but it still needs to be done. They keep asking. um, That sort of creepy picture there uh, comes from POGO, the Project of Government Oversight, and uh, it's um, the generals with their their hands out, um, begging, if you will. Um, Defense experts across the political spectrum, uh, they support BRAC. There was a, a letter that a bunch of them sent in 2013, Chris was a signatory. Um, you know, groups like Cato and the Center for, Strate- or Cato AEI, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. Um, all sorts of groups uh, were on board here. Um, one prominent non-signer is perhaps the Heritage Foundation. But uh, Dakota Wood over there, a long-time um, uh, member of the Marine Corps, uh, has been quoted recently saying that he thinks that this is a good time to do it and, uh, and that we should move forward. Um, in terms of how much extra capacity we have now, uh, DOD released an infrastructure capacity about 11 months ago. They estimated the average excess is about 22 percent, uh, but that's not even across all of the departments. It's really in the Army and the Air Force that there's 33 or 32 percent excess. Uh, I would say that that is based on projections uh, of a, a force structure in FY19 that now may or may not come to pass. Um, the, the baseline you know it was coming from uh, an expectation that things would continue more or less on the path that President Obama was setting forward, and President Trump has different ideas, so uh, we'll probably need to get some clarity on that first, um, but they do think that um, even if there were a significant change, there would still be plenty of excess um, that uh, that would be worth looking at. Uh, they say one round would, would probably cost about uh, or save about two billion dollars a year with an initial cost of about seven billion so Return on investment in about three or four years uh, to free up money for other things. Um, now, in terms of the political prospects, um, you know, on the Hill, Congressman Adam Smith uh, seems to have been the leader on this for a number of years. Um, and this isn't the full um, explanation of everything he's been involved with, but he did offer an amendment in Hask in 2013. It failed. Um, there were Republican and Democrats. Uh, both voting for it and voting against it, um, he offered an amendment to the NDAA on the floor it wasn 't made in order by the House Rules Committee uh, Just a few weeks ago, he introduced a new proposal that uh, uh, attempted to incorporate some of the recommendations from the two thousand and five brac Commission report and uh, you know I read through it uh, as a, a free market guy. Uh, I wish that the, the the process for divesting federal property uh, were more Consistent with federalism, you could say. I mean, right now there's this long laundry list of all the folks that need to uh, need to get a bite at the apple before um, it can be disposed of. Um, the word "homeless" appears 44 times in the Adam Smith bill. That's a uh, you know because of the McKinney-Vento uh, Homeless Assistance Act or something like that. Um, but you know that process could be cleaned up. And my understanding is that some folks in the Oversight and Government Reform Committee are taking a look at that. Um, Congressman Ratcliffe from uh, Eastern Texas uh, had an amendment to bar a BRAC round It pass voice. Uh, he has a facility that, uh, actually there's a facility right across the border in Arkansas uh, that he seems to be concerned about. Congressman Beto O'Rourke from the other side of Texas uh, had an amendment to actually strip a provision blocking DOD from doing anything with respect to BRAC. Um, but you know now we have a new president, um, Senator McCain has talked about how it's actually cowardice to, for members of Congress to um, you know, not engage in conversations about moving forward with BRAC. Uh, I wouldn't use that language, but he does, so good for him. Um, but the new president I think is the main, main reason for optimism. Uh, there was a lot of distrust for President Obama, uh, there was a lot of concern about uh, his relationship and commitment to a strong national defense. Um, whether or not that was justified, there was a lot of concern there. There isn't that level of concern with President Trump. There may be other concerns. Um, but uh, you know Secretary Mattis in the driver's seat of this whole process, I think people uh, can be assured that he is going to put the readiness and capabilities of the armed forces above anything else. Um, now in terms of how it moves to the House and the Senate, I mean the House tends to be more resistant to doing this. It's probably true, given McCain's statements about working with uh, ranking member Reed uh, and historical practice that it would be moving through the Senate. Um, my understanding is that the, uh, neither the House nor the Senate NDA has ever carried BRAC, that it's been airdropped in conference. Um, but uh, you know, for the, the sake of regular order and a good process, hopefully it'll be included in at least one of those base bills. Um, Another possibility uh, is narrowing the scope of BRAC a little bit. Uh, this is really a political consideration. Uh, DOD probably wouldn't be crazy about it, but given that the excess is concentrated in the Army and the Air Force, and that their Vice Chiefs have recently asked the House Armed Services Committee if they could please have BRAC, um, maybe that's the way to focus uh, You know, the Navy and the Marine Corps and the Defense Logistic Agency there's not that much excess, and depending on what force structure looks like, there may not be any excess, or it might be so small that it's not even worth putting that um, on, the, uh, on the table politically. Um, you know, doing so by excluding the, the Navy and the Marine Corps and DLA, you actually remove a lot of facilities from the heartburn that members have to deal with, and, and that may help it along. But again, if we could do a defense-wide version, that's probably the optimal one. So that's all I have, and at this point, I will turn it over to Chris.
2: Uh, let's see. No other one. You got it. I got it. Yeah, right there. Okay, there we go. All right. So uh, that was terrific. Thanks, Kurt, for sort of giving an overview. Um, thanks to all of you for coming. I, um, this is a project I've been working on for a long time. I won't get into all the details, but uh, the reason why I started uh, to get into this research into what has happened after uh, base closures is because the need for base closures is clearly established. The economic evidence uh, is also quite clear. The savings are real, Uh, most communities adapt, uh, but we're confronted with uh, a particular set of images in people's heads about what happens when a base closes. And so I'm trying very hard uh, to uh, correct the record or at least to plant some new images in your mind. So uh, let's see if anyone can guess what this place is. Um, uh, Pictures of of empty buildings and large uh, asphalt parking lots, empty. Uh, and of course, the uh, you know the ubiquitous chain link fence, complete with lock, right? Uh, I couldn't I couldn't have made this up, uh, but I did not make this up. It was a real place. Um, uh, you can guess maybe where this might be. Uh, they have uh, signs in both English and in French, uh, and there's the border to the state of Maine. Okay, uh, and this is the. Uh, Loring Commerce Center, formerly Loring Air Force Base, in Limestone, Maine. Okay, show of hands and be honest, how many people have ever heard of Limestone, Maine? How many people have heard of Maine? Okay, good. All right, so we have a frame of reference, we've established a frame of reference, this is very important. Um, Just a few quick words about, about Limestone. Kurt mentioned I'm from Maine. That's where I grew up. My mom and dad still live there. Uh, and when I was a kid and when I was in high school and college, my dad was in the tire business. I drove all around the state of Maine. Uh, had never been to this place. Um, it's far away from virtually everything. Okay? Uh, in fact, in the write-up that I did of this paper that I'm presenting tomorrow at a major conference, and uh, you basically you keep driving on Interstate 95 as far as you can possibly go and then I-95 ends, and then you keep going on US Route 1. Keep going, okay? Um, uh, Limestone itself is about not quite two miles from the Canadian border to the east, okay? It is not the northernmost place in Maine, uh, and it is not the easternmost place in Maine, but it is close to being the northernmost, easternmost point in Maine, if you follow what I'm saying, okay? So you can understand why this facility was so prized by the Air Force when they created, this was the first SAC base, Strategic Air Command Base, built exclusively for SAC from the ground up. During World War II, uh, the then Army Air Corps operated a base about 25 miles south in Presque Isle, Maine, and that became, by, by war's end, one of the largest uh, airfields in the country, which I didn't believe, but I actually went back and checked the data on that, and it's actually true. So. I went to visit Limestone, these pictures were taken. Um, I actually took all of those pictures. I'm not a professional photographer, so cut me some slack, uh, and I took them with my iPhone. So anyway, um, I expected it to be bad. It was worse than I expected. Uh, it probably didn't help that it, there was a driving rain for two and a half days solid. I did not see the sun for two, two and a half days. Um, but I think that many people have this image in their mind of what is going to happen Uh, to their base, Uh, and I want to submit to you that uh, this is close to being one of the worst cases possible, uh, and then there are other cases. Now, uh, how many people have heard of San Francisco? Yeah, good. Okay. How many people have heard of the Presidio? Okay, good. That's the Golden Gate Bridge. You've heard of that too, right? So so this place, okay, the Presidio in San Francisco, former Army base, um, is sort of justifiably famous. It is located in a famous city, in a famous location, and it is beautiful. Uh, I I think there's really no disputing it. Um, I did not take this picture with my iPhone, Um, but I want to point out one thing that's interesting here is this picture, I'm guessing, was taken uh, in the late 1980s, I'm guessing. Uh, because if you look down here, is there a pointer on here? No, whatever. Um, If you look down here, this is something called Letterman Hospital, which was actually the largest military hospital in the United States uh, in World War II, uh, and one of the first military facilities ever constructed. uh, The early stages of it were built uh, to deal with uh, uh, wounded coming back from the Spanish-American War. So that picture was taken, like I say, sometime in the late 1980s, And now if you look carefully, uh, Letterman Hospital is gone and it is replaced by this uh, campus uh, called the uh, Letterman Digital Arts Center. Now I did take these pictures, I'm actually quite proud of them. Luckily it was a beautiful sunny day in San Francisco. Uh, These were taken back in August of 2015. And uh, if you look carefully, this is a completely planned out facility Uh, sort of a series of buildings in this L shape. Um, If you also notice some of the other landmarks from San Francisco, uh, this is the, uh, down there in the the corner, that's the um, Palace of Fine Arts, one of the famous sites in San Francisco. And if you look carefully in certain parts of where you are on the Letterman Digital Arts Center, you can actually see that rising in the background. It's it's really an amazing place. Um, Anyone ever heard of this thing? Okay, probably not. Uh, It turns out there's a famous tenant at the Letterman Digital Arts Center. Uh, You may not be able to see that picture very well, uh, but if you zoom in, that's Yoda, and this is the home of Lucasfilm, uh, Industrial Light and Magic. George Lucas uh, constructed this campus uh, at the Presidio uh, when they tore down the Letterman Hospital. Now, um, it's interesting because the Presidio is handled by an organization known as the Presidio Trust, It was stood up as a special uh, by special legislation. They had a special set of uh, conditions and criteria governing how they worked. But the the key criteria, as far as I'm concerned, is that they uh, received money from the federal government for a period of 15 years, and the legislation stipulated that it would not be for more than 15 years. And sure enough, Uh, in 2013 was the last year they received money from the federal government and the Presidio Trust is now bringing in more money than they spend to maintain this facility. It's pretty complicated because the facility reverted to the National Park Service uh, through a series of uh, legislation uh, governing the the Golden Gate Recreational Center, which is the, an area, this whole series of parkland, and the National Park Service immediately realized there is no way they could afford to maintain this property. The property itself is tiny by National Park Service standards, uh, but the cost to maintain the structures were considered just completely out of. Uh, out of their uh, area, and so they stood up this Presidio Trust as an independent agency uh, empowered by legislation. You go elsewhere on the Presidio, Uh, this is the famous main post, you're looking out into the bay, Um, uh, most of those buildings have been repaired or are being renovated, Um, and then there's housing. You might have heard that housing in San Francisco is fairly expensive. Uh, not all of the housing is quite as fancy as that's the landmark this is another former uh, hospital basically in the other corner of the base the Public Health Services Hospital Uh, trust me when I tell you uh, I've seen pictures of what that looked like before they renovated it, and uh, it's not surprising that to this day there are rumors that the thing is haunted uh, because the thing that it it is now replaced uh, was truly uh, a haunting structure this big monstrosity huge Uh, both both basically left empty for uh, about 15, 20 years. These are the Baker Beach apartments that don't look all that great from from the outside, uh, but if you look carefully, uh, that's the Pacific Ocean, that's basically the part of of the Presidio that faces out onto the Pacific, so the location is is pretty choice, and again, you're right in the middle, basically effectively in the middle of a major urban area that has, as I said, some housing problems. So those are what the apartments look like, some of them, and then there are residences. Now these were places that were uh, occupied mostly by officers and a lot of doctors. Uh, at the Presidio when it was operating as an army base. Uh, These are some of the first properties that the Presidio Trust focused on uh, renovating at considerable cost, but now they rent them out to families, and uh, last time I checked, uh, residential rent accounts for about 41% of the Presidio's uh, uh, revenue. So this is a considerable share, and that's actually down slightly from a few years ago, because since Lucasfilms got in there, they're now starting to generate a bit more uh, revenue from commercial rents. Okay. So that's what's been done at the Presidio. Um, so to pause for a minute, you've heard of San Francisco, you've heard of Maine. Uh, let me submit to you that these are the two extremes. Okay? Um, uh, I've, like I said, I've studied both of these cases by now pretty carefully. Uh, I know one of them uh, sort of everyone in Maine, even people like me who li- grew up in southern Maine, uh, we sort of knew the story of Loring. It was sort of a legend uh, of sorts and uh, and we also knew about Presidio i many times visited there. My sister used to live in San Francisco. I know this property, so i had a, I had a pretty good sense of what these two properties were, and let me submit to you that these are the polar opposites okay um, it is uh, it is understandable why the main congressional delegation uh, created the legislation that BRAC undid, that is to say legislation that prevented the military from closing any bases uh, for about 10 years, from about 1977 to 1988, uh, because they were right, right. When the base closed, Limestone was in trouble, and uh, nearby towns, Caribou and Presque Isle as well, because the surrounding community around Limestone was also in trouble. Arista County has been going on through this long, slow downward trajectory uh, going back many decades. In fact, if you look at population in the, in the entire county of Arista County, that population was declining since the 1940s, and you had this tiny little blip in limestone that went up for about 30 years, okay? So basically, limestone is back where it would have been had the base never been created in the first place, okay? But that's the worst case scenario. Now on the flip side, the Presidio is the best case, and am I gonna tell you that every single base is gonna look like the Presidio? No, in fact, I'm gonna tell you that no base is gonna look like the Presidio. It would have been almost impossible for that property not to have been a success. By some calculation, this was the most valuable piece of property on the planet. Okay, at the time when it was converted to the city of San Francisco. Okay. Land value is the uh, represents the largest share of the value of a home in San Francisco than in any other urban area. Okay, So those are the two extremes. Let me tell you about two other cases that you might not have heard about in Maine. Um, one is the Brunswick Naval Air Station. Now, the interesting thing about Brunswick is uh, it was closed in the... Fifth br- brack round. This is sort of like the bastard stepchild of the brack rounds, which, which Kurt told you quite a bit about. Okay, the I- idea was the, the, the fifth background was such a hodgepodge of realignment and so little actual closer, closure, the costs were very, very high, and the revenue gained were very, very low. Um, but I visited Brunswick, in fact, I visited Brunswick many times. I actually visited there many years ago as a midshipman in the Navy ROTC, flying those things, P3s. They actually didn't let me fly them, but I flew in them. Um, Okay, uh, And uh, that's the, what's left of the P3s, that's a static display, before that they flew other planes. And when I visited Brunswick uh, uh, to take these pictures, I went downtown, Brunswick is home to Bowdoin College, so you know, they, it's sort of a college town, and I interviewed uh, this young woman who's working in a t-shirt shop, uh, kind of tourist tourist shop right in downtown. And I said, you know, what's going on in town? She like, said, oh, you know, this is great. It's summer and the tourists are in town. Uh, Brunswick is right on the coast. And uh, obviously in the wintertime it's a college town. And I asked her, I said, what about the what about the base? Don't you guys have a base here? She said, oh, yeah. It's kind of ghosty. Ghosty. And, and I saw what she meant when I went there. You, it is Acres and acres and acres of asphalt and concrete, right? This is tarmac and uh, airstrips for the P3s and P2s before them. And at any one time, you can go to these bases, and I can take pictures like that of grass growing up through concrete. Uh, But if you just focus on that and you miss what else is happening at Brunswick, it's a lot. Uh, Moulding Healthcare makes uh, specialty bandages. They were one of the very first tenants there. The the residences were one of the first things that were sold off. Uh, So I said uh, Brunswick was in the 2005 background. The last plane flew out in 2009, and the base was handed over to the Midcoast Regional Redevelopment Authority, MRRA, which is now responsible for managing Brunswick Landing, in 2011. And in less than five years, The MRRA uh, is way ahead of their projections in terms of employment and uh, uh, business activity at the former Brunswick base. So in a very short amount of time, uh, things have gone very well. Now you might argue that Brunswick had a lot going for it. It was in a reasonably good location on the coast, it had uh, this uh, kind of well-educated, uh, you know, pro- college professors and the like, uh, what not, it's a college town, and it's not too far, about eh, 45 minutes, not quite from the main town in Portland, main city in, in, in Maine. Um, but here's another case that I suspect most of you have never heard of. Um, Bangor, Maine's the third largest city in the state of Maine, it's about two hours north of Portland on, 90, on Interstate 95, and for many years it was an Air Force base uh, through starting just before World War II, Uh, and then uh, a SAC base, and then fairly abruptly in 1964, uh, Dow was uh, included in a very long list that uh, Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense issued, and uh, in a fairly short amount of time, less than four years from the announcement, uh, the Air Force left. Um, It was, uh, it's a SAC base, mostly for refueling, although that's a refueling plan, they had some fighter aircraft there, Uh, And even to this day, the Maine Air National Guard operates refueling flights out of there. Very, very long runway. Not quite as long as the runways at Loring, but a very long runway for a traditional uh, airport. So this is a picture that was taken from a guide book for people who were who were assigned to uh, Dow uh, back in 1960. That's what that's the chapel. And I took this picture of the chapel several years when I visited back in uh, June of 2015. And it's a different angle, but you can see that it's, it's the same structure. It really hasn't changed at all, and it's being used as a church. Go figure. Um, I toured around because what happened with the physical properties of Dow were converted into uh, uh, campus buildings for the University of Maine of Augusta, Bangor campus. Uh, uh, they have structures, and again, if you, if you do this like me and you go to bases and you sort of pick up, there a certain base architecture and you can sort of recognize it. This is the former officer's club uh, and there's another structure there. And their, their slogan, their, their, mod- their mascot is the moose, so you can see that. And and basically, these two views here at the bottom, uh, this view is right towards the airport, the Bangor International Airport, and that view over there, you can't see it very well. It's hard to get a good angle, but General Electric set up an operation there in 1969, and it still operates there. It's one of the largest employers in the city of Bangor. So that's one of the things that has happened with the former Dow Base, uh, is this college campus, but the main thing that happened was the airport. The Bangor Airport handles 41,000 flights in a given year, something like that, Um, and you know these pictures, actually I did not take these pictures because when I was visiting there they were in a renovation project and so I got these pictures from the folks at the airport showing after they had completed their renovations. Bangor is a pretty popular airport for a couple different reasons. Again, because of its location, it's very popular for uh, refueling stops, for uh, transatlantic flights. Uh, it's an emergency landing place uh, if, for planes that have uh, difficulty over the Atlantic. Uh, and again, they continue to operate military aircraft out of there. Um, so let me, let me close with this, and we'll have plenty of time for Q&A. Uh, uh, in the paper, I, I, uh, I interviewed uh, main, uh, Tom Andrews, who was... A, Congressman from uh, the southern district of Maine, this uh, first congressional district, and he was there at the time the Loring decision came down. And he was a pretty unpopular guy because uh, they had gone, we only have four members of the Maine congressional delegation, two representatives, two senators, and uh, the three other uh, members of the delegation, they objected to the BRAC process. They said this process was unfair because Loring was included, uh, and Tom Andrews was the, was the outlier. He said, no, the process wasn't unfair. They gave us a fair shake. We made the best case possible for Loring, and we came out, uh, and, and we didn't win. Uh, but the process was fair. And so he told me a story about speaking to a local chamber of commerce a few years later, uh, and a businessman stood up and said, uh, you know, why is it the government can't operate like a business? And Andrews said, because the government is not a business. Uh, you have to have a vision, You have to, just as you do in business, but you also have to be able to uh, make tough decisions and allocate scarce resources. Uh, and the government doesn't do that, or it makes it hard to do that. Uh, if you can't close down a base when the fact that the base isn't needed has been clearly and painstakingly established, then you can't possibly make the rest of the government operate more efficiently. Now, the BRAC process was created to sort of circumvent this natural, normal, parochial instinct of members of Congress to block the closure of bases, but my contention is that that they believe they are doing a service to uh, their community, even if it may be a disservice to the country as a whole or to the military, but I argue they're in fact doing both. They're doing a disservice to their communities and to the military. They're preventing the military from reallocating resources efficiently, and they're effectively keeping underutilized property trapped behind uh, chain link fences and razor wire. Now, it's interesting because two of the three cases I just showed you weren't closed. Most, for most of the time that it operated, the Presidio was a public park. They closed it during wartime usually, but otherwise it was a place where people from San Francisco could go. They could go to Crissy Field or go to the beaches from San Francisco going back. This actually started in the late 19th century and Dow was always operated as a commercial airport even when the Air Force was operating there in full time. Most other bases however are closed. I I look at a number of cases, one of my favorite cases, I went to graduate school at uh, Temple in Philadelphia and I was there when the announcement came down that the Philadelphia Navy shipyard was closing. Uh, The Navy shipyard was closed. For most of my life I thought that Broad Street stopped at the gate. Broad Street doesn't stop at the gate. Broad Street stops at the Delaware River. Okay, and now, if you go all the way down to the end of Broad Street, you eventually come to the river. Philadelphia now has places, they have a number of businesses operating there, including the maker of Delicious Tasty Cakes, which you can tell I'm a big fan of, and um, Urban Outfitters has a headquarters there in Philadelphia. It's an incredible spot. Another one is Fort Ord in Monterey, California. Now there's a lot to say about Fort Ord, but I will say this. Cal State Monterey Bay, which was created right after the base closed, is operating there. And there's also a large uh, kind of recreational area. Uh, And so my point is simply this. We shouldn't focus merely on the best cases or the worst cases. We should sort of focus on the typical. Cases. And the typical cases are those where the local community works together to identify opportunities to reuse different properties in different ways, and every single case is different. I've studied, about, I've studied in detail now about 15 cases, and I have another six or eight in mind that I need to visit. But I've actually visited 15 different places. Uh, and what's striking is that how different each of them are. The the communities figure out different ways to use these properties, uh, and and each each circumstance is different. So again, uh, I took that picture. See, that's a nice picture. Uh, But not every place is going to look like this, uh, but also not every place is going to be like Loring and Limestone. And so with that, I'll stop, uh, and I'd be happy to take your questions. Kurt or I, I guess, uh, should I I sit back down again? Okay, all right, I'll sit down. Thank you.